again, Freethinkers, and welcome back to another episode of the Free Thought Project podcast. My name is Jason Bassler, and today I have a guest with me who many of you are probably familiar with. He's a frequent contributor to the Free Thought Project and has been on this podcast several times before. Our guest this week is Gavin Nasciamento, who will be talking about his new powerful ebook, A History of Elitism, World Government, and Population Control. Gavin spent the better part of 2022 researching and writing this book, which already drew from years of research and knowledge on the ruling class, about how modern power structures have been created right under our noses and some of the insidious goals of the ruling class establishment that claims authority over our lives. Now, Gavin's work isn't for low-effort thinkers, it's for serious thinkers, and when you hear Gavin explain the different elements of this book in our conversation today, you will realize just how deep the rabbit hole goes. So, without much further ado, here's Gavin, and here's the show. Gavin Nascimento, welcome back to the Free Thought Project for what your like fourth appearance on our show now. I think it's the third, or maybe it is the fourth, but I think it's the third. It's somewhere around there, but <laughs> somewhere right there, right? You're certainly our, our most frequent guest, and there's certainly a reason why. You know, you're inc- incredibly well researched. Uh, you're knowledgeable about history of the, the ruling class. You understand the power structures. Uh, you you know the the occult information that isn't widely known in society, and in fact, that's exactly what we're going to be talking about today, which is your new book, and you released it in early February of this year. It's entitled "A History of Elitism, World Government, and Population Control." Now, I should mention you have a shorter, expedited version on the Free Thought Project, but if people want the full version they will have to compensate you a few bucks to buy it. And, and, you know, rightfully so as someone who knows how long you spent researching the material in this book. But with that said, you, you recently told me that this book has actually been delisted on nearly every platform you put it on besides Amazon, oddly enough. Can you explain what happened? One of the people on my Instagram, they commented how they were trying to make the purchase, I think it was on Apple Books can't specifically recall then they said oh you know i I can't get it it's not available it's just like missing and then he immediately made the jump that it's been shadow banned and then when i heard that i thought you know maybe this is just somebody that's kind of jumping to conclusions which we can all do that sometimes no big deal and then when i went to go check it out lo and behold it really was removed from over there and then i went into like the may the main publisher that i went through and on there it noted that every single avenue that I had published through them was delisted. So Apple Books, Barnes & Noble, Kobo, 
a, a bunch that don't even come to my mind right now. And I'm thinking, what the, like, nobody's contacted me about this. Nobody's made any correspondence about this. So I reached out to the customer service and then the customer service, it was such a strange email, man. Like the customer service gets back to me and I was very respectful. I was just like genuinely curious. Like what is this? Maybe some kind of a mistake. It, normally you'll at least get advised about this kind of thing. And then in addition to that, actually, a week prior to him even making me aware that it had been removed, that's when all of it got delisted like on every single platform except for Amazon. So then I emailed and I said, look, like, you know, what's what's the deal? What's going on here? I don't understand. Is there some kind of technical glitch? Whoever's on the other end of the email, this dude gets back to me and is completely rude to where he basically, well, he or she, or so and so forth, <laughs> right? They, they basically said, uh, you have not done your tax information correctly, which is bullshit. I know that I did that tax stuff. I checked on it two, three times just to make sure. They said that you didn't do your tax information on time. And as a result, it's been delisted. And then they even proceed to like kind of insinuate that they may still threaten legal action. And it was a, a very heavy handed response. And I was just like, dude, what, what is wrong with you? Like that's such an unnatural, heavy handed over the top response. And unfortunately, I impulsively replied rather than um, saying like, because I woke up and that's the first thing I saw because I'm trying to figure out, you know, when you've got a specific topic is on your mind, you want to get this sorted out like ASAP. And I just kind of replied and I said, I'm shocked by the tone of this email. Like you are customer service. I'm being very respectful. I'm asking you a simple question. And then you just say, oh, well, you didn't do your tax information correctly. So now we are delisting you on every single platform. And then you are even suggesting that you may threaten like some kind of legal action. And then I explained, I never received any correspondence. I went through all my emails, right? Any major platform, if you aren't doing something and there's a certain prescribed window, they will send you follow-up emails. Like you need to get this done. I double quadruple checked that I did this and I did do it. And anyways, it was just such an over the just over the top response. And I haven't gotten another response since then. That was about a week ago. So that's where it's at. And I mean, intuitively, I do feel like there's some strange fuckery going on there. That's very, very weird. It's, that's not a normal response. No, no, no. It, it sounds like uh, perhaps this individual employee might have had like a personal um, opinion about maybe your work and your book. And, you know, there's there's plenty of people out there who still kind of latch on to a lot of the establishment and uh, mainstream ideas, opinions and thoughts. So it, it could be as easily explained as that you were just challenging those things simply by producing this book. And that was enough to, to trigger him with a, a knee jerk reaction. But this is more proof, guys, that this censorship isn't just happening online, right? Like this is something that's happening even with books. And there seems to be, at least in this case, a concerted effort to take down Gavin's new book, which, you know, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, it's only been up and out since early February. So this is certainly strange, certainly ominous. Before we get into the rest of the meat and potatoes about your book, because I really want to talk about this and get it on everybody's radar, because it is such an important piece of work that you've created. I did want to remind everyone that next week for the podcast, we actually have the great Ron Paul, the goat himself, Dr. No. The man and, uh, he's going to 
yeah, he's going to be joining us for a, a podcast. So you'll definitely have to check in and listen to that one, guys. And then the week after that, we have author Jeffrey Hahn joining us with his new book, COVID-19, The Short Path to You'll Own Nothing and You'll Be Happy. And uh, that should be interesting as well, guys. It's a, a great book that he's put together, kind of detailing the the response to the COVID scamdemic. And there, there's just a lot of great stuff that he put together in that book. So you won't want to miss that one either, guys. And while we're talking about books here, I also want to mention, I know I announced it officially on the last podcast with Larkin Rose, but our book that Matt and myself have been working on for the past year and a half, which is entitled Little Free Thinkers Know Your Rights, is about a week away from being printed and in our hands. So we're super excited about that. Definitely check out the website, littlefreethinkers.com, especially if you have kids. But even if you don't have kids, it'd be a great gift to share with friends and family. The target age that we're shooting for is about 8 to 12. But in my opinion, this is one of the best things that we could do to really lay a foundation of liberty, of freedom with our children. So that will be coming out. We'll be dropping that probably within the next month or so. So you recently wrote a book, as I mentioned, entitled A History of Elitism, World Government, and Population Control. Can you tell us things? What was the impetus behind writing this book? Like what made you want to write this? What gave you the, the premonition that this is something that you have to do, that you have to manifest and, and bring into reality? And then the other question would be, can you just maybe tell us the basic premise of the book for somebody who hasn't even heard of some of these concepts, maybe just kind of lay it down in layman's terms and uh, just kind of like a brief overview of some of the topics that you touched on. And after that, we could kind of get into more of the details. Okay, cool. Yeah, for sure. So the motivation behind it was actually, I suppose, um, spearheaded largely. It's been something that has been in the back of my mind, sitting there for a while, but with the whole lockdown stuff, which is really, it's, it's an extreme expression of elitism, the pursuit of world government and population control, which I go into a bit later in the book. But after seeing that and, and the absolute insanity that encapsulated the whole entire globe and the human suffering, because the human suffering is largely kept out of mind's eye and mind's sight, uh, in the establishment media, it's unquantifiable. Like if you sit there and you really look into it and try to digest it as best as you can. So I said, man, I've, I've got to start instructing and let me not say instruct, but empowering people with the information, with the insights on how this massive system works. Because a lot of us are so caught up in fighting one another and arguing about relatively frivolous things that we lose sight that this is very similar to a complex chess game. And if you don't really know how to play this chess game, you're going to become a pawn in that chess game. And then the, the concept or like an introductory insight as to just kind of the foundation of what this book represents. So the book's title is A History of Elitism, World Government and Population Control. And that's essentially what it is. It's a history of the ideology of elitism which in layman terms, it's just the sense. Elitism is the notion that there is a small group of people, sometimes referred to as an oligarchy, who believe they are superior to everybody else and they have a right, they have a duty to rule over everyone else, whether or not those people acquiesce and give them 
the uh, the rights to rule over them. They don't care. Then world government, which is something that people are, you know, they're very concerned about. I think we've all heard about it in one format or another, generally with religious undertones. But the fact of the matter is world government is a very real thing and it's already a so it's not something that is coming. People believe, oh, you know, it's coming. We have to prevent it. It's already here. It's just a matter of them constantly looking for ways to consolidate that power and that authority. And then population control is just that. And it's not just population control in, sense, in the sense of limiting uh, human reproductivity in terms of the progeny that we have, so the birth rates. It's not just about depopulation. It's also about social engineering. It's about behavioral modification. It's essentially about how can, from a ruler's perspective, and you've got families that have been in power for literally over a thousand years. Some claim to descend from the ancient emperors of Rome. So you have families that for centuries and centuries have made it their sole profession to study how to control the population. And that invariably is what represents population control. So it's just a history illuminating how their methodologies work with concrete verifiable evidence yes well I, that's a great explanation I, I think that's a brief overview which is you know full of uh detail and and substance and this is something that's been happening for a while now in fact i think um jesus i, I probably have to bring up the stats specifically but like sperm counts in men are down something crazy like 60 percent since the 70s you know, birth rates have dropped significantly. Like this is something serious guys. Like this is something that we need to be paying attention to. And there's a lot of different factors for this, you know, that play into this. A lot of it, uh, is the, the chemicals that are in our food, the chemicals that surround us on a daily basis. Uh, unfortunately there's a bunch of different factors that a lot of people aren't even aware of yet. And I think this is just kind of the beginning of just now starting to kind of understand what's going on. And of course, many scientists still claim that they don't really have a great understanding of what is causing this. But this is certainly something that's happening. And I guess it's a whole different argument, a whole different conversation to say, is this happening intentionally? Is this is something like this being planned? Are there multiple factors involved, multiple right. power players involved from different echelons in society? putting together and manufacturing this type of agenda. I, I, I wouldn't say it's completely off, you know, to, to suggest that is potentially happening. So the person, the authority, the primary authority that has done an excellent job at like promoting awareness on this. And a lot of that culminated actually when she went on the Joe Rogan podcast, her name is professor Shauna Swan. She's a renowned epidemiologist. So this is not a controversial source to cite. And yes, she's found that sperm counts worldwide are dramatically declining. And this is something that I also focus and feature in the book. And the reason why is because, as you will find, it's, it's, it's fairly complex. Um, there's a lot of detail behind it. So in order for me to properly go into it, it would take a much longer period of time. So people will have to read and just, you know, be brought up to speed on this. But essentially what she blames, what she finds to be the primary culprits behind the infertility crisis that we are faced with it's not a population crisis it's an infertility crisis where she actually projects by 2045 we won't be able to procreate naturally that's that's huge guys that's shocking right it should be on every news outlet but she says that the overwhelming culprit in all of this is harmful chemicals like jason was saying and these chemicals they can come from 
it's ubiquitous in our society. So it'll come from uh, the Tupperware that you use. So be mindful of what you are putting your child's food in, for example, because there are chemicals that seep into the food, for example. You'll find it in cosmetics, so makeup. You'll find it in, uh, I think it's perfume. You will find it in also the insecticides that are being used. For example, she quotes one specifically called atrazine. And what was so profound for me in the moment that I heard her say that, and she also actually explained that she believes atrazine and these um, hormone disrupting chemicals could also be behind the whole phenomenon, like this crazy movement now of gender fluidity. And this is something I argued back in 2017, about six years ago in a presentation I gave. And everybody said, oh, you know, you're so crazy. Because I was quoting a study conducted by a guy by the name of Professor Tyrone Hayes, where he pointed out that frogs, and this is significant because frogs have a very similar physiological response to us. So if it has an adverse effect on them, it'll have an adverse effect on them, on, on us, excuse me, where they were finding that high levels of atrazine were chemically castrating them. So they were literally turning into to females. They were losing their genitalia. So he began to pursue, pursue this more. And then over time, I mean, they tried to censor him. They tried to silence him, but he was very clever in how he went about exposing this. And since that time, they've done studies where they've found that women that are pregnant, their babies in utero, if they have higher levels of atrazine, it's a higher likelihood that their babies will become infertile. They'll be microphalanx, which is to say like they have a micropenis and they can't reproduce. And also men with higher counts of atrazine in their sperm count, it, they have a lower fertility rate. Okay, The significance of this, as you will read in the publication, is there is this very elaborate system in place, this population control system in place, where they are fixated, eerily fixated on sterilizing the population without our awareness. And this was particularly prominent and big uh, during the 1960s and the 1970s. And the powers that are behind this, guys, were the same powers that were behind the scenes in China's one-child policy. Like, they are obsessed with limiting the number of people on the planet, especially amongst those who are not elitists, amongst those who they don't deem to be fit to rule. And one of the things they write about is a guy by the name of Cole Gerasi. That's D-J-E, Gerasi. He is considered to be the father of the contraceptive pill, okay? This dude, and that's according to the obituary in the New York Times, this dude, he literally wrote a publication in a prestigious science journal, and this is something I also illuminate in my book, is they would openly declamate, they would openly deliberate on different population control sterilization methods in prestigious science journals. And, they, and of course, they would put it forward as if they are theoretically considering it but they do it in such detail that it's very instructive and, and naturally that raises suspicions this dude called Jurassi in a publication called um after 1984 and i think he published it in 1969 he literally deliberates on using an insecticide a weaponized insecticide for the purpose of birth control for the purpose of reducing the population and what he actually remarks on it's so eerie this dude he says, because the science community, they generally first study how these chemicals affect animals. If we can create an insecticide specifically targeting human beings, it will be especially effective. And then just the last point I want to make is 
as Professor Shaughness one points out, with these chemicals, uh, in an interview which I cite in the publication, she notes that when they actually come and approach and confront the offending chemical companies, what they do is they very strategically, they'll replace the offending chemical with a brand new one that has just a slightly different composition, but the same horrible effects. And then if you look at who some of these uh, offenders are, these are companies that descend from the Nazi IG Farben company. And this is specifically uh, the company Bayer. And the other one I think is BASF. So they're producing these chemicals and they have a history in terms of coming from IG Farben, which was the Nazi war machine. Uh, and the whole thing about Nazi Germany was about population control. Like the whole final solution thing was an extreme form of population control. And although it may seem like, wow, that's such a leap, Gavin, you know, these are the ancestor companies of IG Farben. The Nazis lost the war. Like that's long dead and gone. The reality is that numerous IG Farben executives and high ranking members, they were convicted of war crimes, but they were absolved shortly after the theatrics of the Nuremberg trials. And they were absolved of criminal wrongdoing by a guy by the name of John J. McCloy, who's a close friend of the Rockefeller family and also close to the Council on Foreign Relations. He was involved with the Ford Foundation, just a high ranking dude. He absolved him of wrongdoing. And these war criminals, these IG Farben Nazi war criminals, they were so brazen that they immediately went back to a high ranking positions within these chemical companies, including BASF and, and Bayer. So there is grounds for further scrutiny. And if people want to learn more, they can check out the publication. That's right. You certainly will learn a lot more, plus uh, <laughs> a ton of stuff that Gavin's thrown into the book. So yeah, sometimes reality is stranger than fiction, right? And the sperm count dropping, that could be potentially another conversation. I think you just wrapped it up really well there, Gavin. And there's certainly some overlap with the whole push after the World War II with Nazis being kind of integrated into science and education and certainly strange. And I was reading right here on BBC that there's an article that came out end of last month about how pollution is causing a male fertility crisis. And they actually said, research suggests that the whole spectrum of reproduction problems in men is actually increasing. So it's not just declining sperm counts, but it's decreasing testosterone levels and increasing rates of erectile dysfunction and testicular cancer. So this seems multifaceted and, uh, you know, maybe some of those things that can't quite be attributed to the lifestyle, probably more about, yeah, the, the chemicals that surround us. I don't know if you guys remember, but there was a big kind of uproar about microplastics being found in our lungs. So, I mean, these chemical compounds are making their way into our bodies. The more that they're used in different products, the more likely it is that it's going to have some type of detrimental health effect on us. So when Alex Jones was saying that they're making the frogs gay, I mean, it, it yeah. almost. But that dude, I mean, he just did such a disservice in the way he put that forward. But yes, it's sure. true. But yeah, there is. The frogs gay. <laughs> yeah, there's some truth to it, right? So one of the things, too, that we haven't even really mentioned or talked about yet is the potential of bio warfare, you know, and I guess maybe some of this stuff could be considered bio warfare, but bio warfare is something that the U S government has engaged in multiple times over the decades. Uh, one example that we covered pretty extensively 
on the Free Thought Project was Operation Sea Spray, which I'm sure Gavin's familiar with. Uh, but in the 1950s, the U.S. government carried out attacks, I guess you could call them attacks, on 800,000 of the city residents who were receiving heavy doses of certain chemicals that uh, I guess authorities thought it would be good to test on. And no, you got to remember, guys, this wasn't something that they had any type of preconceived knowledge of. They never consented to it. It was just straight up like the government decided they were going to test on a whole bunch of people, and they did. So this is just one example of many. Definitely check out that article on the Free Thought Project. Just go to the, the search bar and type in Operation Sea Spray. You can read all about it. But I know, Gavin, that you've also um, touched on some of this and researched it and maybe even documented quite a bit of it in the book. So what would you say is something similar that could be going on today as far as like these dangerous biowarfare experiments? I know we just touched on that whole aspect of it, but is there other aspects that you think are worth talking about? Yeah, absolutely. So first, the, the one that took place in San Francisco, the Operation Seaspray you, you're talking about, just very quickly, I want to just let people know there was a death involved in that and there were uh, like two dozen hospitalizations. And the only reason why we actually know about that is not because the government was monitoring the outcome. They weren't. We know about this because there was a, a group of vigilant scientists and they went ahead and they saw this inexplicable, never ever before seen in history outbreak of serratia master sense in the hospital. And so they began to write a publication. The publication is still actually available online. I do have this also in the publication. And, uh, and they found that, yes, somebody had died as a result of this outbreak. And even with that information, so this had never occurred before in history, okay, literally in history, when the government became aware of this publication and that there was a death and that there were two dozen hospitalizations, they decided to say that the deaths due to the serration was the hospitalizations were coincidental. Like I shit you not. Like it's coincidence, it's never been recorded before in history, but now them introducing serration master sense, which was foreign to that community, that's the significance there, guys. It was foreign. Them spraying the whole entire population, it had nothing to do, it was coincidental. And so they decided to continue spraying that population. I mean, not that population, but different parts of the United States. And so by the 70s, it had been recognized as a serious problem like a serious health concern now would that have become a serious health concern had it not been for the secret spraying right that's something we have to seriously consider uh, and then just in regards to that there's so many experiments guys where there was no oversight there was um no monitoring and there were these flimsy ridiculous excuses for why they were doing these experiments like in um this is something called Operation Large Area Coverage, where they literally sp sprayed millions of the civilian population, the whole entire continental landmass. In fact, if you look at the documents, the whole entire continental landmass was sprayed with something called zinc cadmium sulfide. Cadmium is a carcinogen. It is recognized today as a carcinogen. And there's a guy, Professor Paul Leonard. He's a biowarfare expert. He's not a controversial figure to cite. Immediately when this began to emerge, the government's claim was that oh, the scientific consensus is that it was relatively harmless, it was, you know, it was safe. They said the same thing with serratia mycocens. And then Professor Leonard Cole, he was brave enough to where he came forward and he, and he actually had congressional testimony. He said, no, that's nonsense. The literature has long demonstrated that these things are very dangerous. 
And these examples of people developing cancers and just terrible cases. And because people weren't actually being monitored, guys, and you're spraying an entire continental landmass with a known carcinogen. Okay, cadmium today is recognized as a known carcinogen. And as Professor Leonard Cole pointed out, during World War II, it was recognized as a biowarfare agent. So immediately we can make the leap that this isn't just an experiment. This is actually a biowarfare attack. I know that sounds crazy, but if it had been a foreign government, that's exactly how it would have been framed. So when you realize that, okay, millions of people were experimented on with a carcinogen, a known carcinogen, which is something that causes cancer, guys. I mean, you can't even quantify what they must have done, and none of them were being monitored. It's shocking. So lo and behold, all of this experimenting was done allegedly because they were concerned uh, during the Cold War that communist Russia was going to gain a foothold on this information. So we had to beat them in this race for biowarfare knowledge. The same thing they said about MK Ultra and mind control. And in hindsight, we know now that that was nonsense. Now, one of the things I demonstrate in the publication is that at the highest levels, the ruling class create these, uh, these kind of conflicts and they inflate them so that they can maneuver and strategically weaponize certain uh, intelligence and certain skill sets. So with MKUltra or these biowarfare experiments, they took some of the most intelligent and some of the brightest scientists out there and they got them to focus their expertise on behavioral modification, on population control, on biowarfare, and who was the target invariably? It was the civilian population. And the same thing happened in England. Now, a big part of the publication is that this was considered the Cold War. That was the excuse that was used. I show how, like the Rockefeller family, for example, they were funding both sides of this. So the communist side and the so-called American capitalist side. And yet, they, and then they're also involved in the mind control and behavioral modification experimentation. Um, one of the fundamental themes in the book is right now we have the exact same rhetoric being used where they are saying we are in a second cold war and you have characters like a guy by the name of james giordano okay he is he's supposed to be an ethicist he portrays himself as an ethicist and they oftentimes do this in the establishment but he is the exact opposite and he's basically also a neuro warfare and a psychological warfare specialist and bio warfare specialist and he's going around the country to different military academies and so on and he's trying to make the case why, you know, we really need to relax our moral compass in pursuing new nanotechnology warfare. So nano warfare, neuro warfare, and so on and so forth. We need to be a bit more relaxed in that because our opponents, they're not going to have the same moral standards as us. This is the exact same uh, playbook as what was used in the past. And then if you are digging a bit deeper into it, and then I find funding the nanotechnology programs, you find American elitists doing the same thing, such as institutions, rather, like the Gates Foundation or the Rockefeller Brothers Fund. So what I'm seeing here is the exact same story because history repeats itself. And, and it's always the best guide to understanding the present, especially when the present seems totally you know, impossible to understand. As you look at history and you say, wow, they said the same thing back then. They were funding both sides and the civilian population became the targets. Now, they're saying the same thing. They've got the same exact rhetoric argument. And yeah, we have institutions like the Rockefeller Brothers Fund and the Gates Foundation that are kind of funding both sides. So naturally, you have to be logically and healthy in your suspicions that they may be targeting the population again. And when I see all these inexplicable diseases taking place, 
I don't think it's a ridiculous leap. These, these inexplicable things taking place all around the world, these autoimmune disorders that had not existed in our great-grandparents' time that are plaguing the entire planet pretty much now. So that's another aspect of the book that I take a closer look into. Yeah, I'm sure if you're just hearing some of this stuff for the first time, you're kind of scratching your head and wondering, like, how did we become the enemy? But I think there's plenty of evidence and plenty of our podcast guests over the years have have noted this, that we've always been the enemy. We've always been the biggest threat to their control mechanisms and to the overall health of the government and how they're perceived in society. So the crazy part about this to me, Gavin, is that a lot of times we don't hear about these things until decades later, right? So even Operation Sea Spray, yeah, there were some reports about it over the years, but it wasn't until October 2017 when three congressmen began speaking out about it and calling for government to be held accountable for conducting these secret, you know, quote, experiments, if that's what you want to call them. So, you know, we, we covered it, I think, a few months later for the Free Thought Project when it all started to kind of bubble to the surface. But this is, it kind of flies in the face of what we've even experienced over the last three years, right? Because the government always wants to present itself as a savior, right? Or a patriarchal figure who's trying to protect us. And that's what they did by allowing some of these COVID mandates to become, I guess, sometimes federal policy. And some of those policies were the lockdowns. Now, we just had recently a UCSF doctor come out and, and speak before Congress and actually lay the smackdown about how the government wasn't following science itself. Now, I have a short clip here that we can play and, and listen on for just, I think it's probably about, about a minute or so, but she breaks down all the different ways that government actually got the science incorrect, including the lockdowns. So let's listen to this really quick and then we'll, then we'll move on. We had evidence uh, prior to the pandemic that masks were um, largely ineffective at preventing um, community transmission um, of uh, influenza and other upper respiratory viruses. And we did not obtain any new um, high quality evidence during uh, the COVID-19 pandemic that masks are effective mitigation strategy in schools or outside of schools. We have a number of confounded observational studies, many of which were actually published by the CDC um, that have serious flaws in them that I think unfortunately led people to believe that masking children was going to be effective and actually necessary to keep children in schools. Um, but the highest quality data that we have, for example, from um, a Cochrane review of randomized studies has not found evidence of masks. So that wasn't um, scientifically sound. Uh, effective. The, the mask so, guidance correct, was not scientific. Correct. It wasn't science-based and the six feet of distancing has, was arbitrary. Um, you know, that was based on um, basically just looking at how uh, far certain size droplets spread. It wasn't based on actual transmission of disease and we knew very on that COVID-19 was predominantly aerosolized and airborne transmission. So we, we ended up getting some pretty good observational data not finding correlation between amount of distancing, six versus three feet, and um, case count case rates in schools. So there you go, guys. The, the premise that lockdowns were basically championed was that it was more or less the, the social distancing, right? You don't want to be around each other. Stay home. Do not go out in public. And as more and more time goes on, these are just myths and, and fallacious lies that have been propagated to the public. And I even remember hearing at one point that the whole 
social distancing thing had no scientific basis. It actually came from like a student's uh, science fair project and it kind of caught wind with some prominent scientists, but there was actually no research behind it. So all these things almost feel like they were kind of just winged and, and made up by local governments, by the federal government. Now, you have argued in the book that the lockdowns worldwide were actually social, socially engineered programs targeting civilians. Do you maybe want to get into that aspect a little bit? Yes, definitely. Uh, so, yeah, man, in 2020, I actually made a, a five-hour presentation, a lengthy five-hour presentation, meticulously exploring the actual science behind this. So everything I said clearly demonstrated that it was all pseudoscientific. There was no science foundation whatsoever and all the conflicts of interest. I mean, it was just overwhelming. But anyways, in regards to specifically to the social engineering aspect of it, immediately when I saw it was taking place, which was just an unprecedented fear mongering campaign. I mean, you remember we saw people in hazmat suits hugging their family members and People were so scared, they had like a cardiovascular heart attack, which is the number one cause of disease, okay? Many, many millions of people are dying uh, every single year because of heart failure and heart attacks and, and cardiovascular disease. These people were so scared of COVID that they actually had heart attacks at home and they refused to go to the hospital. Like, it's absolutely nuts. The fear was just never, ever seen something like that before. So immediately I knew intuitively, okay, there's a big red flag over there. And I've studied what fear does to the mind. It literally damages the brain. I'm not exaggerating. It damages the brain. So, and it's something that is thoroughly studied in, um, in mind control programs like MK Ultra, for example, and also weaponized at places like Guantanamo Bay for the purpose of psychologically breaking people. And then I also saw that they were social distancing which stripped of its orwellian rhetoric is simply social isolation and social isolation guys is one of the most dangerous things in the world it's been compared to smoking uh, a large amount of cigarettes on a daily basis and in fact it's been considered to be worst and the ill effects this has on every form of health condition so premature death due to all causes is majorly uh, accentuated as a result of social isolation. It also destroys your mental well-being. And again, this is something that's weaponized in Guantanamo Bay. Then I saw another thing, which was the face masks. Now, at the time, wow, people were just so crazy about this face mask stuff. It was very difficult to get through to anybody about that kind of information. But this is another thing that's weaponized at Guantanamo Bay. And whilst it may seem very silly, the reality is that it's a form of sensory deprivation, and it has been also thoroughly studied for its capability in inducing psychological breakdown and regression. So the more that you can sensory deprive somebody and at the same time simultaneously control their sensory inputs, which is to say you control the interpretation of reality, so you isolate them from the known world, you isolate them from their family and their friends, and then you isolate their sensory input and output, their semblance of, of sanity. What is a normal way of conducting myself on a daily basis? These little things chip away at the human psychology and they open up the gates for behavioral modification. So specifically, what I do in the book 
is I actually go through something called the QBARK, K-U-B-A-R-K, interrogation manual, which was inspired by MKUltra. Now, unfortunately, the QBARK manual is a watered down version. They didn't give us the authentic version, but there's still enough information in there to where you can see how the tactics that were used during the so-called pandemic and the lockdown were in fact stringently studied in behavioral modification programs like MKUltra and subsequently get weaponized in interrogations. And although you may be thinking, well, Gavin, this is an interrogation, that's an individual. The exact same concept and methodology that applies to the individual can be extracted and it can be weaponized against the majority. It's the exact same concept. So you get people socially isolated. They also talk about manipulating the environment. So you monopolize the environment and kind of the day-to-day things that go on. So you randomly impose curfews. You randomly say when people can come in and out of their house. Uh, you basically disrupt their entire lifestyles. You say that they can be in a gathering of two or three people. All of these absolute insane things which serve to actually manipulate your environment. It's, it's to keep you on your toes. In fact, there's one particular reference that I cite towards the end which is called the Alice in Wonderland technique, which I've spoken about before actually on the Free Thought Project podcast now that I recall, where essentially the tactic is that you want to create a mentally intolerable environment for your target. And the purpose for this is because it induces psychological breakdown. So they constantly talk about regression. And what they mean by regression is going to a more infantile childlike state. So today, when you see all of the madness that is ensuing, and you see these pseudoscientific lockdowns, and you see these gender fluidity indoctrination programs, it's not designed necessarily to make sense. It's designed also, in part, there are multiple motivations, but it's also designed to be psychologically exhausting, because that will induce regression into a more child and infant-like state. And I think all of us that are paying attention can see how people all around the world or in fact becoming more childlike, more rational, more crazy, and acting bizarre as a result of all of this. Oddly enough, yeah, that they want the adults to be more childlike and they want the children to be more adult-like. I mean, that's <laughs> partially why, uh, yeah, I mean, they're, they're allowing, you know, these, these surgeries to, to happen at younger ages and it's definitely concerning. And I think you hit the nail on the head. So one of the other prominent themes in your book is depopulation. And I know this one's a bit more controversial. A lot of people don't like to open up the can of worms on this specific topic. I think it doesn't sit well with them. It makes them feel kind of uneasy. And uh, I think a lot of people just don't want to believe that it's, it's actually happening. But eugenics is certainly something that's very real. You've documented it thoroughly throughout the book. And you've also documented how there's powerful network that's still to this day, and this isn't something that's happening in the past, it's, it's happening now, still actively engaged in this type of form of population control, which is eugenics. So can you maybe talk about that a bit? Yeah, sure. So yes, uh, you know, a buddy of mine and I were talking and he said that, you know, you telling me about all of this stuff with eugenics, Gavin, it just sounds like you all roads lead to eugenics. And I thought, wow, that's such a concise expression, man. That's such a concise one-liner because it's so true. All roads do actually invariably lead to eugenics. And unfortunately, eugenics is it's a tricky topic because when you approach it through the establishment um, channels of information, they try to make it seem as though it was about 
like white supremacy, scientific racism. And as a result of that, it's kind of like a knee jerk. Oh, it's just one of those things and you throw it away. But the reality is it was an elitist ideology. They were eugenists of all different skin colors. Like, for example, and this just also gives a bit of credence to the people who are very reluctant and incredulous in believing that something like this could be going on. In India, which was the first eugenics government program that we know of, they may have been doing secret ones, but this one was openly known about, where the US government and the Indian government, they worked together to engage in a massive campaign of sterilization of the Indian population. And as a result of this, there were millions and millions of forced sterilizations. Um, virtually all of them were coerced. And some people actually died. There were thousands of people. I think the figures around 2,000 that we know of. Now, you have to recognize we didn't have the same statistic capability that we do now. This was like in the 60s and the 70s, if I recall correctly. So it's likely to be much higher. But those are the ones that we know about. And what they did and there were all kinds of trusted organizations involved, the Rockefeller Foundation, the Ford Foundation, Planned Parenthood International. They all got involved in sterilizing this particular population as a, as a means to quell the population numbers. And it was a very elitist program. It was obviously aimed and weaponized against the common people. Now, immediately, I know there are people out there that say, well, you know, I agree. Poor people shouldn't have babies that they can't take care of. And I can appreciate that that perspective nobody wants to see kids that are growing up in poverty like it's such an unfair thing to them like their life is going to be dictated by this but what those people need guys in order to overcome poverty and scarcity is they need sustenance to overcome that situation they need education and we have more than enough for all of that but unfortunately those kind of solutions are solutions that the ruling class don't want to implement. And there is more than enough food, there's more than enough water, there's more than enough shelter. I've gone through all of this information before. But in order, if you implement that, then you have a population that has full sustenance. So they aren't dependent upon their rapacious, parasitical powers that be. And in that power dynamic, obviously things are going to shift. But anyways, that's a, a clear historical example of this particular thing. Now, one of the reasons why I also point out Planned Parenthood International is people don't recognize it. I actually made a video on this. So this will save a bit of time. Just go check out the video. It's actually specifically about the Gates Foundation, but it goes into Planned Parenthood's history as well. That Planned Parenthood has been a eugenist creation. And I know there's so much emotional propaganda around that. It feels very evocative and people are like, oh, that, that sounds ridiculous. The evidence is undeniable. Margaret Thatcher, she was a, a member of the American Eugenic Society. She was a life fellow of the British Eugenic Society. She was also an honorary member of the Hong Kong Eugenic Society. And that's, again, because there were different uh, skin colors and races, elitists that were eugenists. And, um, and they've just been dominated by different individuals within the eugenics establishment. Now, after World War II, which was Nazi Germany, and that was an extreme form of eugenics, population control, the elimination of the Jews. It started first with sterilization, and then that was an extreme expression of it. After World War II, because the ideology, as I think we covered in a previous podcast in the Free Thought Project, and if not, it's also all covered in the book, Hitler and Nazi Germany were inspired by the American and British, so the Anglo-American elitists that they saw the Anglo-American Anglo eugenists that they saw, they were actually inspired by them. And so 
they began to implement these these policies, but in an extreme way. And after the public relations disaster of World War II, the eugenics establishment began to distance themselves from the eugenics movement and the eugenics word. In fact, we have a very incriminating letter from a guy, he used to be the uh, Secretary General, Carlos Patton Blacker of the British Eugenics Society, literally writing a letter saying that what we are going to engage in is crypto eugenics. And he was one of the founders of Planned Parenthood International. And then they began to insert themselves everywhere. So the World Health Organization, largely funded by the Rockefeller Foundation, for example, it's a eugenist creation. Um, or the Rockefeller Foundation was a eugenist establishment, major patrons of eugenics. Brock Chisholm, you can go look this up. It'll maybe even be on Wikipedia. He was the first um, main head of the World Health Organization. He was a eugenist. Uh, UNESCO, the head of that, Julian Huxley, he was the former president of the British Eugenics Society. And the tentacles are just pretty much everywhere in that regard. And then China's infamous one-child policy. This is one more example we can get into um, before I explain the Gates Foundation's role a little bit in all of this. That whole entire policy was imposed and implemented with these organizations in the background. So these Western organizations, one of the most significant, so the Rockefeller Foundation was involved, the Ford Foundation was involved, and, um, and Planned Parenthood International was involved in China's infamous one-child policy, which, horrific, guys, terrible human rights abuses, unspeakable things, things that haunt me to this day. And another organization, a far lesser-known organization that was instrumental in China's one-child policy program was called PATH, P-A-T-H, the Program for Appropriate Technology in Health. And the president of PATH was a guy by the name of Gordon Perkin, and just under him was a woman by the name of Susan Cluett. Now, these two individuals, they so their role through PATH was to supply all the technologies needed to sterilize the Chinese population. Okay, that was their role. They, they supplied the Chinese government with this technology. Guess where they went after the stunt with the Chinese government? They went to the Gates Foundation. So Gordon Perkin became the first ever director of Global Health, I think it was, or the first, he was a major ranking figure. And Susan Kluwert was his vice, uh, vice chairman. These two people were the first as well to be non-family employee members. And if you look at William Gates Sr.'s own autobiography, Showing Up for Life, in there he credits Susan Kluwert and Gordon Perkin as being the real driving force behind the Gates Foundation's um, pursuits and what they're doing and learning about the field. He also made a speech about this. And then if you look very closely, for example, with the Gates Foundation, you can watch a video. It's called The Dark, um, The Evil Ideology Behind the Gates Foundation's Beginnings, a short video that I made, which illuminates this. Uh, with the Gates Foundation, then you find him creating things like microchips where with a remote, you can switch on or off a woman's fertility. And as insane and ridiculous as that sounds, these are undeniable facts. It's all available, available there. In fact, you can find the, um, the, the grant on his website, which I also cite in the publication. So this is a very real thing, guys. It's a, it's a very real threat, and they have massive resources. And unfortunately, the concept of elitism and eugenics, it's not relegated to billionaires like Bill Gates or the Rockefellers. It also pours into its ranks the most prestigious scientists, some really brilliant minds. And as a result of that, this cancerous elitist ideology, it ends up being weaponized against the overwhelming majority of the people.
I remember some of that from, I think, a few of the recent videos that you've put out, kind of documenting and detailing that. And also, guys, like, don't just pick up this book, right? Like, go over to Gavin's Truth Warrior Gavin Instagram account, his Facebook page. Uh, I'm sure there are more. We'll talk about it at the very end. But follow him, guys, because you're not going to only be looking at this book. Gavin also breaks down certain parts of it, certain chapters. He's constantly making content, putting out hard-hitting, powerful, truthful information on his social media outlets and platforms. So definitely check him out there, guys. And yeah, Bill Gates, right? Like <laughs> he's not just this uh, nerdy geek who's a philanthropist, right? Like he, there's a lot more going on behind the scenes. I know the fact checkers want us to believe otherwise. And I know you also mentioned the Council on Foreign Relations, and that seems to be one of the main culprits here. I know we kind of teamed up and we made a meme a few months ago similar to uh, what you had suggested, you know, you all roads leading to eugenics, but kind of the same thing as far as all these different various uh, alphabet agencies, all these different world uh, powers and institutions and groups and funds and think tanks, and they all kind of have their tentacles one way or another interwoven with the Council on Foreign Relations. And I know earlier we were talking about how world government is not only coming, but it's already here. That was something you had mentioned. Um, and the ruling class at the highest levels are not really at war with each other, but they're at war with us. And I know I mentioned that a few minutes ago as well, because we ultimately are the enemy, right, guys? Like we're we're the tax base, but we're also threatening their power. We threaten their control. So do you think uh, you could maybe help our listeners understand this concept a little bit better about how world government and one world government, the new world order. I mean, there's a bunch of different names for it, but more or less, it, it is already in existence. Right. It already is influencing many aspects of our lives, many aspects of politics. So yeah, go ahead and break that down. If yeah, sure, cousin. Um, so yes, world government, it's not something that's, that's on its way. It's, it's yeah. And the pursuit of world government is just as old as history itself, guys. So there's always these elitist elements that they want to expand empire. There's nothing really controversial about that. It's been done just forever. Even the concept of countries and nation states that we recognize today, these things, not long ago, you know, in terms of actual world history, they didn't exist at all. Uh, they just came into being because they were opportunistic um ambitious elitists and individuals who said, man, I want to create a larger empire for myself. One of the examples that I use, because it's very, it's not controversial, it's widely accepted, is uh, the rise of the German empire. So uh, there was a guy who, this dude basically, so, so to put it in a way that people can better understand, I suppose, is in the past, the way that there are states in the US, so you have California, you have New York, you have Florida, these individual states, Germany existed as a, in, in that context. It was just a bunch of independent states. And then there was a guy by the name of Otto von Bismarck, if I remember his name correctly. And uh, he decided that he wanted to basically create pretexts of war. So he wanted to ferment war. He wanted to instigate war. And then after each war, he would subsequently consolidate the German states more and more until eventually there was the Germanic Empire, what we recognize now today as Germany. So that's just a very basic way that that works, where you can look at it, 
it's recognized by mainstream scholars in establishment history to corroborate. But basically in the modern context, this really went on steroids in an unprecedented way. And this, in my mind, is the, the first true birth and culmination of actual palpable world government was in the wake of World War II. So in the wake of World War II, there was the birth of the United Nations, there was the birth of the World Health Organization, there was the birth of the World Bank, there was the birth of um, the, uh, man, why is this escaping me, <laughs> of NATO, of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, which is the largest global military alliance in known history. This was also the invention of the Department of Defense in the US, the invention of the Central Intelligence Agency through the NSA Act, um, through the Hmm, I quite, is it, was it the NSA Act of 1947? I quite specifically remember now, man, it escapes me. But in the wake of World War II, it gave rise to an unprecedented form of global governance. So when you think of the World Health Organization, when you think of the United Nations, when you think of the World Bank, when you think of NATO, these are global governing structures. It's, it's not a complicated thing to recognize. So, for example, with the so-called lockdowns or with the so-called pandemic and the lockdowns, what we see is the World Health Organization kind of dictating protocol and then it gets adopted by other governments. That's a, a top-down structure. That's a form of central governance. It may not be in your face because if it's in your face, it's not going to be accepted. But it's still some kind of a top-down structure where you get this particular authority, they give directions, and then it's adopted by others, right? So... In the wake of World War II, these organizations began to dominate. Now, what makes this especially significant is how this took place. Because the justification was basically that, man, we don't want to ever have another Nazi Germany. Again, that was so dangerous. We need to be protected. This is for our safety. So give us, give us this authority and this power, this burden. Give us this. And then what we will do in return is we will protect you from something like that happening in the future. Well, as I meticulously detail in the book, uh, in it's called The Chess Game of World Government, this particular chapter, what you find is the Council on Foreign Relations, especially, different members were seminal, not just in the rise of Nazi Germany uh, financially, but even ideologically. So you get a guy like Sosthenes Ben, very strange name, maybe I'm saying it incorrectly because I've only read his name, but it's S-O-S-T-H-E. N-E-S-B-E-H-N, Ben, Sosthenes Ben. This dude was the head of AT&T. Well, he empowered the technological capabilities of Germany, but he also did the same for the U.S. government. Then we see the guy, um, Thomas B. Watson, of uh, the tabulating company, which today is IBM, if I recall correctly. And what he did, he was actually awarded by Hitler for his work. He went ahead and also gave them the technologies that they needed to round up the Jews, for example, and other people that are forgot uh, that were exterminated or sterilized. And then he also helped the U.S. government. Henry Ford and the Ford Motor Company, they did the exact same thing. And various different industries and also families, the DuPont family and the Rockefeller family did the same thing. Actually, specifically, they were so instrumental in a company called the Ethel Corporation. The Ethel Corporation was jointly owned by the DuPont company and, uh, and Standard Oil, which was controlled by the Rockefeller family. They, in fact, gave the Nazis the technology they needed to even wage war. 
because after World War, they were being very closely policed in terms of their military capability. But one of the ways in which they got around this was they found a way through scientific know-how, through again, you take science, brilliant scientists and you weaponize their minds. They took this know-how and they found a way to extract oil as a fuel supply out of coal. And there was also this component called ethyl. It was new then. And they got this technological know-how. In fact, one of the members of IG Farben specifically cited that they would have never, ever been able to wage the war that they did had they not gotten this information from the Ethel Corporation. So essentially, and I mean, I don't want to go on about it for too long because I can go on forever about it. What happened over there with Nazi Germany and the way that they were able to successfully fight militarily and also the US government to fight militarily they wouldn't have been able to do that had it not been for Council on Foreign Relations members. And why is this so significant? Because during World War II, the Council on Foreign Relations was also advising the U.S. government on war policy. So they advised them on what they should do. They advised them, for example, to put stringent sanctions on Japan, uh, which is now written like a kind of like a trading bargain, which is now recognized as one of the penultimate factors that led to the attack on Pearl Harbor, which the evidence shows that they knew was coming. And um, simultaneously, while this was going on, there was a guy that, uh, man, he had, he's got a strange name, so I can't remember it off the top of my head now, but he's known as the intellectual architect of the National Security Act of 1947. So and he, he uh, just a few months, he detailed, out, oh, there's going to be a foreign attack unless we do something. And this dude was a, a grantee of the Rockefeller Foundation, and he ended up working for other companies involved in the, in the network. So he was close to the shadowy structure. So he writes his book about, oh, this, this is an impending foreign attack. And then lo and behold, Pearl Harbor, after being advised, the U.S. government gets advised to do these kind of baiting attacks. Then there's this attack, and then everybody says, oh, this guy's a genius. He saw it coming. He's a prophet. We need to implement this 1947 National Security Act. And then, just lastly, at the conclusion of <clears throat> World War II, the Council on Foreign Relations continued to advise the U.S. government, and they played the seminal role in the creation of the United Nations, which was actually donated by John D. Rockefeller III. So the, it sits on land donated by the Rockefellers to this very day, they were the seminal influence in the creation of the United Nations, the World Health Organization, the World Bank. Um, I think the other one might be the International Monetary Fund, but I can't recall now. And then also with NATO and all the details explaining this and describing this, some of which I'm likely forgetting, are all in the publication for people to see for themselves. So invariably what you see is they're financing both sides of a conflict. And also, in fact, Japan was dependent largely on resources like the oil resources of standard oil so it's not just both sides of the conflict it's multiple sides of the conflict and then they kind of guide where things will end up going which is a stronger form of global governance and that right there boys and girls is what the chess game of world government is all about well said my friend and you know this actually is significant because this current global order is, as we speak, shaking up and shifting. And a lot of people don't realize that we currently live in like a post-World War II neoliberal world order kind of set up for the world. And it was in place, as Gavin said, it slowly kind of shifted into place after World War II. But now things are changing because 
the dollar is slowly losing demand as the global economy's reserve currency. And the U.S. regime has been weaponizing money and banking for decades now. So a lot of countries are starting to shift away from the dollar. They're starting to take some of the value for the dollar down, which is going to be detrimental to the U.S. I mean, don't get me wrong. It's not going to be apocalyptic. It's not going to be the end of the world, but it's certainly going to change our dynamic of living. It's going to change the, the cost of living, the standard of living. And these things are significant, you know, because China right now, it, it seems like it's really making some moves. I mean, the yuan is now the most traded currency in Russia. Uh, China just recently brokered a peace deal with Saudi Arabia and Iran. Like this is unheard of. Those two countries have hated each other for, for years. So things are definitely shifting and it's going to be interesting to see where they go in the next few years. But I would say that's something we need to be prepared for guys. Not a lot of people are paying attention to the de-dollarization right now and the shifts that are going on, but it will be significant. And as far as the, the, the one world government, you know, it's funny. Sometimes I hear people say, you know, I'm, we got to move out of the United States. Things are getting too bad here. I got to move. I got to get someplace where it's going to be better. It's going to be safe. But at the end of the day, as Alex Jones deemed, I know we're talking about Alex Jones again, he, he coined, you know, prison planet. At the end of the day, that's what we live on, guys. Okay. Every country on earth is run by gangs. But here's the good news, guys, is that by listening to this podcast, you're already on the right track. And by reading this book that Gavin put together, you're going to understand that the ruling class isn't invincible. In fact, they're in a very reactionary position. And I think as we always do with the Free Thought Project podcast, this would be a great way to kind of wrap up the end of the conversation, talking about not exactly solutions, but maybe the positive side, like the, the light at the end of the tunnel. Like, how are these people not invincible, Gavin? I know it sounds almost unthinkable because we hear about how much power, money, resources, wealth, influence they have. They have the tanks. They have the they have the aircraft carriers. They have the jets. They have everything. But why do you feel like we the people actually have a chance to defeat this behemoth? All right, so that's an excellent question, and it's something that people need, definitely need to focus a bit more on and become aware of. So the reason why the whole entire power base is eternally fragile is because it rests on the insipid and fleeting power of ignorance and deception. Most of the people that they actually rule over and they control, because that's their ultimate weapon, is unconscious minds. These people actually believe, falsely, but they believe that what they are doing is aligned with the values and the principles of humanity, integrity, and truth. What can dissolve those illusions is verifiable knowledge and truth. So there is a solution to that. And when somebody uh, receives the power of verifiable truth, it changes their worldview forever. In fact, some of the most powerful opposition the establishment has ever faced were in fact people that unconsciously served it at one time in all different levels of society and all different uh, places, even including within the government, guys. So that's something to always be optimistic about. The second thing is, I'm somebody that I, um, I study history, guys, not the nonsense that they teach, the mythology that they teach in uh, 
government and elitist and establishment controlled schooling and education systems and information hubs, because we're living in a totally different landscape today, but actually authentically digging deep into history. And every time there is a revolution in information and communication sharing, this translates into an actual physical revolution. And today, with the internet, we are living in an unprecedented revolution. That's what's going on right now. We are living through that. But we don't have the propaganda voice on our side to help us frame it in that context. We don't realize that what's going on now is they are trying to put the genie, the proverbial genie, back in the box. They are trying to essentially roll back the Great Reset, which implies going back to how it used to be. They're trying to regain control, which is why the internet is their ultimate target. But unfortunately for them, it's too late. The genie is definitely out of the bottle. There are hundreds of millions, okay, hundreds of millions. I know they don't want to let you know about that. I know you don't entirely see it. They amplify the worst and craziest voices in society because this is psychological warfare. But there are hundreds of millions of people who feel just like you do, and they are becoming disillusioned. And with every disillusionment that takes place in society, that immediately equates to empowerment for the common people. And as I see it, the many millions of minds that are waking up, it is impossible for the ruling class to keep up with what's going on. So a lot of what we see taking place is very reactionary. It is not smooth at all. It is chaotic. And they're trying their best to make it to be organized chaos. So as a result of that, just kind of the same methodology, but a bit more advanced in terms of the chess game of world government that I just explained after World War II, they want to create a setting of chaos so that they can then have us focus on fighting each other, have us constantly in this primordial dog-eat-dog, fight-or-flight, tribalism, divide-and-conquer worldview, because then they can focus on how can we get certain things in place to contend with what's happening. And there's many examples of that. The CBDCs, the central banking digital currencies, that's a reactionary measure to the decentralized digital currencies, which they at first tried to trivialize, but it didn't work. The fact checkers with a reckless attempt to try to trivialize and contend with all of these new uh, platforms and these individuals, just like you, Jason, just like myself, since we were uh, like, you know, that at the tip of the spear initially before all of the censorship, they had to find a way to contend with all of these awakening minds. But the thing is, it's a domino effect and it's only going to go one way, guys. It's going to continue to snowball bigger and bigger and bigger until eventually what is supposed to be the Great Reset will hopefully be the Great Revolution. However, just one last thing, and this is very important. I would argue that we are in the 11th hour right now. But it's not just the 11th hour for us. It's the 11th hour for them also. And what makes all the difference in the world right now is that you recognize there is a psychological warfare game going on, a chess game going on. And they are trying to turn you. They are trying to take your creative capability, your unique voice, and make it an echo. They're trying to turn you into a pawn on a chessboard. Try to look beyond that and embody and share and express and amplify not just perceptions that are aligned with truth, but the principles that are aligned with humanity, because ultimately that's what we're up against, is elitist deception and ignorance. And the ultimate weapons are verifiable truth, knowledge, and the principles of humanity.
I'm going to have to add a applause sample in there, man. After that. <laughs> <laughs> that, that was powerful, brother. Thanks, guys. All right, free thinkers, this episode is nearing its end. Just a reminder, we've been working extremely hard to bring you some of the most powerful voices in the truth liberty movement. We work tirelessly for you to bring these concepts to the masses and to educate and wake up those who continue to sleep. Please don't forget to consider donating or subscribing if you appreciate the work we do. It's becoming more and more difficult to do this, and we can no longer depend on social media advertisers of big tech monetization. Our support network is you. So help us rebuild this organization by going to our website, thefreethoughtproject.com, and at the top you'll find tabs for our memberships and donations. Also, please review and rate this podcast if you enjoyed it. Thank you, Freethinkers. Gavin, you're, yeah, man, you're, you're definitely one of my favorite orators of truth, speaking truth to power. And I think you know that I've sung your praises plenty of times in the past. And you know, I personally have a lot of respect for your work. And so much so that we've decided to team up to work on a very powerful project together. Uh, yeah, we, can't, right. we can't yet really talk about it, guys, but I'm ex- so excited to share it with you. Uh, I know for a fact it will help individuals step into their own power, empower themselves, and ultimately take control of their own lives. So keep an eye out for that. Now, Gavin, your publication, A History of Elitism, World Government, and Population Control is very unique. I don't really think there's anyone else really putting out research of this depth for the public. I mean, sure, there might be a few YouTube videos floating around with some of these topics, but in my opinion, this is something that people need to be more aware about. And everything in your book is sourced. Everything is verified. And I know we earlier in the conversation talked about them making it difficult to buy your book, but can you please tell our listeners again, one last time, the best place to buy it and go ahead and plug everything that you want to plug your social media and everything. Thanks brother. Thanks for all the kind words, man. So uh, Amazon, ironically, (laughs) which is so crazy, but Amazon, you can still find it on Amazon. So please, if you want to check it out, you can go there. The other thing that you can do, I've had trouble, unfortunately, creating a format for the, for like tablets or for mobiles. But if you are on desktop, you can also contact me directly, can eliminate the middleman, and I can just send you like a high quality PDF. It's actually very nice to read on a desktop. Um that would Other be the best, you... right? Sorry to interrupt, but that oh, would probably absolutely. be the... Yeah, so... Oh, always, brother. Yeah, always. Yeah, just the direct... Don't even deal with Amazon unless you have to, but if you can, just find one of the ways to communicate with Gavin through his social media. Send him a message. He's very responsive, guys. That'd be the best way, the most direct way. He keeps the money, and we cut out the middleman, which, you know, Amazon's not a good guy in the first place. So, sorry to interrupt. Nah. No, yeah, no, not at all. And I mean, you know, you get people that say, oh, why are you using Amazon? Look, we are all unfortunately ensnared by this matrix on one level or another, guys. We just have to try to minimize our use of it and our support of it in any way that we can while still trying to be influential in eliminating it, right? It's kind of like the whole notion behind the matrix film. In order to destroy the matrix, they have to go back into the matrix. So just be mindful of that. But otherwise, guys, you could just find me on... um, the major social media platforms instagram seems to be where i've got the best traction these days i'm also on miwi where i'm lucky if i get one like so please feel free to join me there uh, i'm on bit i'm on the odyssey video making platform just 
anywhere pretty much just if you're on a platform and you are curious search my name it's gavin and then nascimento uh, i'm gonna rely on jason to go ahead and just copy and paste that last name of mine so we don't take up any more <laughs> energy and effort and focus of yours but otherwise yes brother we have something good cooking for everybody that's rooted in self-empowerment because ultimately what we need is empowering um, information that helps us awaken our individual capability that gives us the knowledge that we don't need a leader we just need the awareness of how we can lead ourselves into a better world so looking very forward to that brother and I'll, I'll just add guys truth warrior gavin also search for that besides gavin's name some of his uh, pages or larger accounts are under either truth warrior gavin or a new kind of human which is kind of his older account uh, names but during the purge in 2018 unfortunately he got taken down so he, he kind of evolved out of that like a phoenix but definitely check out both of those guys google either of those or you know search on any of the search engines and you'll find a bunch of stuff i mean gavin's work is it's all over the place he's quite prolific and let's hope that this censorship of this new project this new book that you've you've put out this new publication is going to actually backfire on them and let's hope that the streisand effect takes hold you know and that's certainly a, a possibility so thank you for your time today and dude bravo for writing a masterpiece of this caliber this isn't one that you guys want to miss certainly support independent journalism support gavin and educate yourself about the true history of society so uh thanks for your time today gavin and we'll catch you next time thank you brother